0: $81.3 billion, the amount of tax revenue New York State will collect in fiscal year 2020. 46% of all resources in the $176 billion New York State budget. Taxes are perennially a concern for lawmakers and advocates. Are the burdens too high? Are the rates competitive? Do we need more revenue? Are internet businesses gaming the system? Joining us to parse the details on the state's tax base and taxation policies is Mike Schmidt, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance.
1: Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette.
0: I'm Maria Doulas from the CBC.
1: Excited about today's conversation to dig into tax policy, which obviously applies to each and every one of us in New York State and New York City. So very happy to have Commissioner Schmidt with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And if you've missed any of our recent episodes, make sure to find those. You can obviously find What's the Data Point on all your podcast platforms. We've had some really good recent conversations. You can also find the episodes on the Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette websites if you're not Necessarily a downloading podcast person on your phone or other devices. You can find those on our website. So check out those. We've had some great conversations recently and we're looking forward to today's. So, Commissioner, uh, tell us a little bit about you before you took on this role. You are new to the position, um, but you're not new to government. And you're not new to tax policy, so just a little background on yourself.
2: Great. Well, first of all, uh, thanks again for having me. It's really great to be here. I'm a, a fan of the podcast. I've been for a while, and I Thank you. really appreciate the, the work that, that you both do and that the CBC does. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah. I uh, uh, am a native New Yorker, a uh, long-struggling Mets fan. Oh. oh. <laughs> We could just – yeah, we could just three of about us that. here, we oh, could just really? – yeah. There was a, uh, a news alert uh, just now that, that said that Joe Girardi went to the Phillies. I don't yeah. know if you guys I'm know okay that. That. Yeah, you I'm OK with that. I think I'm OK with yeah. that too. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Just interesting. <laughs> uh, but anyways, my first job in public policy was actually down in, in D.C. Um, I served at the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, uh, in the years after the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And that was a really formative experience for me. Um, I, I got to see uh, both happen. what happens when government fails
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, in the sense that uh, it was failures in public policy that really contributed to, to the Great Recession, um, but also uh, what can happen when really committed, capable public servants come together to try to uh, to, uh, uh, solve the problems that, that arose. Um, I was on uh, a team at treasury that was focused on implementing the Dodd-Frank act, which was the legislation that was passed, uh, after the financial crisis to reform, uh, the regulation of the financial system. And, and, uh, it was a fantastic group of both political appointees, non-political appointees. I was a a non-political appointee, uh, looking to solve those problems. So that was fantastic. It's also when I kind of caught the public policy, Bug. Uh, And so I've continued in that vein. I served as an economic policy advisor to Secretary Clinton, to Hillary Clinton, during uh, her 2016 presidential campaign, covering a broader range of economic policy issues. Uh, And then uh, I was really fortunate uh, to have the opportunity to join Governor Cuomo's team um, in uh, uh, early 2017. Um, my role in the governor's office was as deputy secretary for economic development. I oversaw 12 state agencies and authorities, and one of those was the Department of Tax and Finance. And I became kind of really uh, increasingly involved in the tax policy and the department's work after the federal government passed its reforms in 2017. And, and that became a real priority uh, for for New York State and, and for Governor Cuomo, figuring out how, how we were going to respond to that. So. Um, uh, uh, you know, fast forward to the end of last year and the um, acting commissioner of the of the tax department, Noni Mannion, who was a 30-year veteran of the department and just a really wonderful uh, public servant who did really, really great work, announced that she was going to retire. And I was thrilled when uh, the governor uh, nominated me to serve uh, as tax commissioner and, and uh, it's been a lot of fun since. So how do you
1: capture for folks um, – in brief, uh, and we'll get into a lot of the details, but sort of in brief what the tax department does um, and is responsible for.
2: So um, I think it it, it is a really uh, impressive operation when you just think about the scale of the responsibility and the function. Um, Around 4,000 employees um, doing policy, law, processing, real property taxes, civil audits, civil enforcement criminal investigations, there's a treasury function, um, uh, and, and doing it all with, I think, uh, a, a high degree of um, sophistication uh, and efficiency. Um, I think the, 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 the challenge um, uh, when you're operating at that kind of scale, particularly when you're uh, dealing with uh, large automated systems, um, is is how do you maintain the the experience of the customer, the experience of the taxpayer? How do you maintain that perspective? I mean, we, you know, 26 million re- returns are filed with us every year. Um, uh, you know, $115 billion deposited, you know, that we take care of. You know, we issue 10 million refunds. We answer 5 million phone calls, 17 million pieces of mail that we send out. So when you're operating at that scale, it's really important that, you think about the, the taxpayer perspective. One of the things the governor said shortly after I was nominated was, um, when you think about when people actually interact with their government, so not you know reading about it on Twitter or or, uh, or you know watching the news, but those actual kind of tangible interactions, there are only a few agencies that are doing that on a regular basis. It's really the DMV and the tax department, and around here people ride the subway. <laughs> uh, but that, to me. Really highlights the importance that we do everything we can to uh, to to, uh, embody and maintain um, a perspective that really drives home uh, the importance of the customer experience. Right.
1: That sounds like you might get the most calls of any uh, (laughs) government agency. Yeah, and actually, we are
2: you know as a result of some of the governor's uh, reforms earlier in the administration, we our our our, um, call center also answers calls for a bunch of other agencies as well. So, so in essence,
1: you're carrying out the tax laws of the state. Yes. I mean, that's that's what it yes. what it comes down to. And I just want to reiterate, you know, the data point that Maria read at the beginning, which is 81.3 billion dollars, the the tax revenue that the state co- collects in fiscal year 2020. And then um, I just wanted to add to that, according to your uh, department's website, um, that that the department administers more than 40 state and local taxes and right. fees. And, um, I mean, just collects
2: billions and billions yeah. of, so of dollars. in addition taxes. to those state revenues, you have the New York City income tax, uh, sales tax, both state and local, and uh, miscellaneous
0: taxes as well. Yeah, and it's something I think most people don't think about and, in a sense, students should, shouldn't think about because the right. time they get frustrated about it is when something goes wrong in right. this massive operation right. and process. Right. So you were um, appointed by the governor in January. You started in June after you confirmed – what are your priorities for the agency?
2: So it really is I mean the I, I think the the overriding priority is really driving that customer experience. Um, uh, you know I think that has a few components. One is that we need to be as clear as possible in our communications with taxpayers and I, I earlier I said that we send out seventeen million letters. That's a staggering number um, and those are. Uh, notices and statements of proposed audit change and information requests and of course bills, um, and you know for us that seventeen million is you know uh, it, it can sound like a statistic, but for the individual who is receiving that letter, that's a really significant event in their lives, potentially highly disruptive, um, and uh, we have an obligation to be uh, as um, uh, clear as possible. I don't know if. Either of you have ever uh, received a notice from a tax department, but they're not exactly known. I for decline their Decline, yeah, I I decline, decline. Your no, inquiry. No, thank you. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're not exactly known for their clarity, and that's because it's generated by systems, right? You have, you, you know, it, you, your systems flag that uh, you need more information or you need to take some action, and depending on the issue, you uh, your systems put together a, a letter. So sometimes you end up with kind of Frankenstein letters that are really hard for the layperson or even the expert to understand. And so uh, one thing we're doing is really taking a comprehensive look at our course, correspondence system to um, uh, to make sure that we're being clear uh, as possible in our communications. I think are, are related. Can uh, I just ask you quickly yeah, on that? Yeah. Who, who helps you with that? Because,
1: you know, I don't know, you're a lawyer, yeah. you know, you have obviously expertise in other areas, but – who are the best people to help you figure that out? And I mean, do you have those people on hand? Does it outside consultants? How do, you, how do you do that?
2: So we have a lot of really great people at the department, and they've been working with the systems at the department um, for a long, long time. So there's a lot of embedded expertise that we can rely on to try to address the issue. I think the question for me is, how do we supplement what we have at the department to, um, to make sure that we're delivering everything we need? uh, uh, you know, in terms of a project like this. So for example, one thing I thought about is this is an extra exercise in language, just an exercise in writing to rewrite these letters, right? Um, it's an exercise in basically it, right? how do you generate systems that are flexible enough so that you can, uh, generate letters that, that are understandable for people and that communicate, uh, what needs to be, um, communicated, uh, but it's also an exercise of design, right? There's all sorts of like social science and, and behavioral science out there about how you can structure correspondences so that you're getting the right message across. And that's not just the words. That's the design. Mm-hmm. So one thing I thought about is you know, can we get design experts um, in to help us think about that? And certainly if there are any volunteers out there, listeners out there who <laughs> want to help, you know, please – he needs uh, writers feel free then.
1: to reach out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, I got things that were not known necessarily for being so concise. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, leave, that, we'll leave that to others. So, the customer experience in terms of the yeah. correspondence that's going out. Yeah, and
2: out. I w- I, just to add to yeah, that, I, I think um, part of it is the correspondence going out, but it, it is interesting. We're talking about mail, and, and tax departments operate w- through mail, and that's for, for good reasons. Um, oftentimes we're required by law to send letters. Um, oftentimes, you know, we're dealing with secret information. So we can't just use email and text, you know, uh, um, without uh, without accounting for tax secrecy law. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's also, you know, people have a right in this day and age to expect um, that uh, we're going to try to use 21st century mechanisms of communication to, to reach them. Um, I saw a... Uh, there was a, a study coming out of Minnesota a couple of weeks ago where there was a, a a county court system started sending text messages out to people who had trial dates, mm-hmm. and they found that they dramatically reduced the number of bench warrants that they had to issue mm-hmm. as a result of uh, that text message program. Really subtle intervention, but mm-hmm. you know we constantly are interacting with tax. You know people owe us money and they they forget to pay, so they accrue interest, or they have an appointment with us and they don't show up, so. Even something subtle like that. Um, I mean, are there the other models yeah. within
0: state government? I mean, the DMV just sent me an email and I'm like, I don't know how you have my email address, but I'm really <laughs> thankful that you yeah. sent me this reminder saying I need to do my inspection for my car.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, the DMV, I think is, you know, the, the modernization efforts that they're uh, undergoing um, is definitely something I think we can and, and should be uh, looking at. Although there's, there are a lot of distinct factors um, that you have to take into account when dealing with taxes. I and mean, I think the most significant one is laws around tax secrecy. Yeah. So that's the
1: big priority for you is, is the customer
2: experience,
1: uh, some redesign efforts, but also figuring out the balance between the mail correspondence and the digital experience. Um,
2: yeah. And being accessible. Part of the customer experience is that you know, when, when people have, uh, people are going to have questions, they get a notice, they want to talk to someone, we need to operate... Um, our contact center in a way that we are accessible, that we can answer people's questions. And we should do what we can to go out into communities um, uh, to, to help people understand how to fulfill their, uh, their tax obligations. The, the department has a, a pretty neat program um, called Facilitated Self-Assistance where for, for the last couple of years, they've been going to community college campuses uh, before uh, uh, the April filing deadline and setting up shop and just teaching kids how to do their taxes for free, you know, department employees, volunteer, to do it. And, and the really powerful thing about that is then they've learned how to do it. They can go home. They can teach their parents how to do mm-hmm. it. You know, we have, you know, stories of families who spent $2,000 on tax preparers. And they realize they don't have to do that because we're able to help them uh, and um, uh, teach them how to do their own taxes. And you're giving them that tool for the rest of their life. So we're going we're, we're gonna to expand Uh, hopefully pretty meaningfully expand that program uh, for the coming season.
0: So your agency obviously collects a tremendous amount of data and information. We rely on your agency at CBC a lot for the work that we do. Um, We also believe a lot in using data analytics to improve and sort of move forward policy, but also improve management. Are you thinking about that? How are you? You you know, do your system? You collect all these different taxes from all these in it, different entities. Do your systems talk to each other? Yeah. Do you integrate them? How are you thinking about that process?
2: Yeah, there's enormous uh, amount of potential in, in the use of data analytics, and and this isn't specific to tax administration. I think there are a lot of legacy industries, in particular, that are beginning to think about how data analytics can be used to, to solve, um, uh, to solve the problems there. Uh, facing, uh, from a tax administration standpoint, um, you know, part of it is, yeah, we need just to maintain the data about revenue and filers, um, because, uh, the budget division, the legislature, the CBC rely on us for that information. So that's really important. But the other piece of it is, is, um, how are we using data to improve our operations? So just to give you an example, um, uh, uh, you know, we have four thousand employees at the department I think around fifteen hundred are on our audit staff and that's a, a lot of folks those are resources that can be um, uh, that are really valuable but there are I think around twenty million people who live in New York State mm-hmm. so how are we applying our limited resources to make sure that um, we are we are choosing uh, the right folks for audit that we're spending the right amount of time on those uh, audits um, it's it's uh, you know, it's good for the state in the sense that it it could mean uh, more efficient revenue collection, but also good for taxpayers because we want to make sure that we're auditing folks <coughs> who should be and not auditing folks who you know have 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 paid their taxes. So that's just one example of uh, many ways in which data analytics can be used to um, uh, to improve tax administration. The challenges, as you alluded to, are are twofold. One is uh, the combination of data quality and systems access, right? So data doesn't matter if you're not integrated into your systems in a way that's usable and, and clean um, and accessible uh, uh, throughout the organization. Um, and then the second is people. Um, so uh, the department has, has, has had a team for the last five years or so focused on data analytics and has done some really good work around, particularly around um, ID theft and fraud detection and, um, but we're really looking to supplement uh, that with high quality uh, talent um, with data science e- experience. So we, we, uh, we've formed a partnership with SUNY, which is pretty exciting um, where there's a, a professor at SUNY named Louis Siegel who has some experience um, at Chicago, economic economist from the Chicago Fed, some experience in the financial sector who's helping us uh, examine some of our our analytical uh, issues uh, you know, use data to, to improve our operations, um, getting some students from SUNY in to help us, you know, mm-hmm. which is, which is a lot of fun. Um, but we've also posted for uh, a uh, a new position, assistant commissioner for data analytics, uh, which again, if there are any big, listeners yeah, out there. Yeah, that's a big job. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, uh, you need to, you need to uh, care about government and public administration, but, but if you do and, and you come from that, that data science background, I think there are a few kind of challenges that are interesting and like high potential as applying those skill sets to tax administration.
0: And impactful, as you said, 20 million people. Exactly.
2: Um,
1: I imagine, I mean, similar to just about any government agency, um, but you know, particularly with the immense task in front of you, um, I imagine there's things that come up where – you realize, oh, this isn't necessarily a matter we can take care of internally. We need a tweak to the law. Mm-hmm. You know, has, has that type of stuff been, you know, come up for you already in the amount of time you've been getting up to speed and getting on board? I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily asking you to share yeah. things that are only internal conversations, obviously. But are there examples where that's come up where you've said? oh, for next session, yeah. you know, you go up the food chain to say, hey, we really need to do yeah, this. Well, into there, government.
2: There, there's a process. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> and the, the, the division of the budget uh, uh, every year solicits agencies for ideas and legislative fixes that then, you know, for, uh, for tax, most, most of what we would want would be part of the budget. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, and obviously, you know, we have a really great Working relationship partnership with DOB and um, you better you better right (laughs) exactly Uh, and so and so yeah there there are you know um, uh, dozens of ideas that come across and you know over the summer uh, you know we we went through a process where we were bringing folks from all the divisions across the agency to bring their ideas to the table and let's have a joint conversation about whether we think overall. This is an idea that we should advance. And so, yeah, we have a list and we're going to hopefully work it through the the budget process. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. So let's shift gears a little bit into tax policy. And, you know, I find it fascinating, um, particularly in the last sort of year, the political climate has been just a lot more taxes. And I think people are not fully aware of what the state's tax base looks like. And what its characteristics are, and how that is both a strength and what the vulnerabilities of that are, and so I think you're the perfect person to help educate the people about this, right? Um, so the as we you know we mentioned there are eighty one billion dollars in New York State tax revenue, biggest chunk of that is the personal income tax, right? Over fifty billion dollars. Um, it's one of every three dollars in the budget. But the base is very volatile, right, because it relies on this sliver of folks for most of that pot of money. So it's, you know, we've done some work on this. We've demonstrated it's 1% of filers who pay 40% of the tax liability. And so what's really great about the personal income tax is that it's progressive. So the more you earn, the higher the rate at, at which you are taxed. At the same time, that is what makes this stream very volatile. Um, so we were just talking beforehand about how you were at a, a, a convention with other tax commissioners, right? <laughs> Talk a little bit about how that is unique relative to other places, yeah. um, and, and what else, you know, you think people should know about the personal income tax.
2: Great. Well, um, I think the first thing people should know, and maybe they know this, but may, maybe they don't, but it's that for the vast majority of folks in the state, the state personal income tax uh, is going down. Um, so there are middle-class tax cuts that are being phased in that are going to result in uh, cuts of around 20% for middle-class filers, um, average savings of $700, aggregate savings of about $4 billion per year. So that's a meaningful, meaningful relief. So that's the first point I make. The second point I make is that there's a lot of support in our tax code for uh, low-income people. Um, we do a lot to lift people up through the tax code. So most, uh, most significantly, I think, is um, our earned income tax credit. So the federal government has an earned income tax credit that uh, 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 is an extremely important program for low-income people across the country. In New York, we have a 30% match for that earned income tax credit, which uh, is among the highest um, in, in the nation. And for a family of four... That can be a benefit of up to seven, uh, $1,700, uh, uh, and overall, I think it's about a billion dollar program that we're investing um, to uh, to support loan compilers, and there are other credit programs like the Empire State Credit, that's a child credit program, the Child Independent Care Credit um, that are really focused uh, on those populations, and then the third point is, as you said, high, highly progressive, um, and... Uh, you know, I view that on net as a feature, not a bug. And and uh, we, um, as we're phasing in those uh, middle class tax cuts, uh, we also extended the top rate, the so-called millionaire's tax, which is uh, an 8.82 uh, percent state income tax uh, on the on the highest earners. So we're progressive and and in, uh, becoming increasingly so.
0: How do you think? I mean, part of what's difficult about that is that that is where the volatility is in the pace. So that, what if and when there is a recession, that is where you will lose the biggest sort of chunk of money. Um, You know, so you don't necessarily want to make it flatter, as you said, it's a feature that the tax was that progressive. But how do you think about sort of buttressing against that or preparing for that?
2: Well, I, I would say, you know the first thing is that that's just something that has to be accounted for in the context of overall budget policy. And and I'm not the budget director, so I won't, I won't dig in on that. Um, uh, But, you know, the state is doing a lot to, uh, to put itself on a, on a sound trajectory. And I think that's a, that's, that's really important. Um, The second piece uh, with respect to the tax base in, in, in particular is uh, the diversification of that tax base. So one thing we've seen since the financial crisis is uh, that the financial sector is less important as a share of the overall tax base. And you have industries like techs, tech, like the tech sector that are coming in and, and uh, becoming a larger share. And I think uh, diversification is very important because that also provides some insulation uh, to, uh, uh, to declines.
1: Should, do you want to talk about salt now, or, or yeah, did you want to go to? The, I think yeah. that's,
0: that's what makes sense, where it makes sense to go because yeah. you know you alluded earlier on to the salt cap, and I think you know we've done a few episodes on it, so listeners know that the in the federal tax reform of 2017, the um, deduction for state and local taxes was capped at ten thousand yeah. dollars, which was as the governor said, it's a, it's a direct hit to New York. Um, and CBC was very worried about this. I mean, the governor, I think, to his credit, creatively tried to see how they could work around, you know, those limits. And yesterday, the news was that the Senate Democrat, Democratic measure put forth by Charles Schumer to kind of override the IRS rule failed. So the question is really, you know, have you seen an impact yet? Or what are you seeing in terms of the impact of SALT across the state and on the state's collections?
2: So f- first on, on SALT, uh, it's important to take a step back and look at, at, at kind of what this provision did. Um, as we've discussed, we're, we in New York State have made a decision as a state uh, that we want to have a progressive tax structure and that we want to invest uh, those resources um, in investments in infrastructure and health care and education so that we're uh, providing uh, opportunity and uh, security to all our residents, uh, to the extent um, that we can, and salt is really uh, the the salt cap is really a, a, a direct threat to that model of of government. So, um, uh, and it's one that has a a, a serious and, and disproportionate impact on on New York's taxpayers. You know, the tax department calculated um, that we expect that the annual tax increase of the cap for uh, New York filers, uh, in terms of their f- the increase in their federal taxes, to be fifteen billion dollars um, per year. And one of the one of the kind of frustrating things about it is that the 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 argument for the salt cap was that uh, it was a quote unquote subsidy for high tax states like New York. But if you actually look at the data, it's the subsidy goes in the other direction. I mean, in New York, uh, you know, overall federal government, you have a set of states that are net givers to the federal government and a set of states that are, that are net receivers and there's a large federal deficit so there are a lot more net <laughs> receivers than there are net givers um there are 10 uh, donor states uh 40 uh uh grantee states and new york is the largest donor state in the country tens of billions of dollars every year going from new york's taxpayers uh, into the federal system, so that we can pay for those services, those healthcare and education, and all that in those other states. So yeah. it's it's frustrating. Um, I think it's good that there's activity uh, in 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 Washington to try to address the issue. I think it's really important for the state over the long term.
1: And have you? Are you? What kind of impact are you are you seeing of late? I mean, we're really, um, you know, sort of. Need to see multiple years and how, you know, taxpayer behavior is being uh, impacted. But in your short time uh, at the tax department, are you seeing anything? Well, I agree.
2: It is something we're going to have to track over the long term. Um, We just had October filings in for 2018. Mm -hmm. So those are the extension filings. So only now do we – are we even beginning to have a full picture for one year that we could begin to look at. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. This is – you know, I feel like we're still in the first inning right? People don't, if what we're talking about is migration, people don't just get up and move because of the prospect of one tax bill, right? Mm -hmm. They might wait for their kids to graduate from high school or they might wait until they sell their business or there's a natural transition point um, in their career. So I think it's really important that we uh, are prepared to kind of understand the impact over time and and we're uh, getting ready to do that at the department.
0: Um, so let's talk a little bit more in the final minutes here about the other taxes the state collects. Um, so one is sales tax. And yeah. I think there's been a lot – I mean I've, I've been interested in this just as an analyst because, you know, over time, you know, our economy has shifted towards services. And traditionally they weren't taxed. And so the state has made some incremental um, gains in, in that respect in terms of broadening the base, include some services. But one, you know, I think universally around the country, one kind of exception has been internet businesses mm-hmm. and what do you do with the Amazons mm-hmm. and third-party sellers and such. I think the state has, you know, made some moves on this in the last few budgets. Yeah. Talk about how you are thinking about adapting the sales tax and what the state is doing to deal with the Amazons of the world.
2: So it's a really important issue and it's an issue that is really about fairness for, you know, the kind of brick-and-mortar Retailers here in New York, right? If if folks who are have businesses in New York are are paying our sales tax, and folks who are using uh, online platforms to sell into New York aren't paying sales tax, that's that's just not that's just not right. Um, and so Governor Cuomo uh, was, I believe, the first uh, to put forward a a solution to this problem in terms of the the uh, online marketplace issue, where you know if you're the Amazons of the world, you know, they sell their their own stuff, but they also sell. They're a platform where other vendors sell, making sure that they have a collection obligation uh, for their platform activities. Um, it took a little while to get through the legislature, so actually, a bunch of other states mimicked what New York did, enacted marketplace tax programs, and then, fortunately, last year uh, uh, the state we you know we got it we got it in in the budget. So, and that's supposed to help fix the subways. That's right. And so that's <laughs> that's, that's in one in yes. one respect. That's yes. that's generally important revenue for the MTA, also mm-hmm. and also for for local local governments. But what do you
1: have to do to? I mean, that seemingly would fall a lot on you to implement. Yes. yes so that, uh, is yeah. that? How's yeah. that going? That that, <laughs> that is, you know
2: that that's that's what we do. You yeah. know, we we get new taxes. We get changes to tax law every year. There are new changes, and every year uh, there is a. Uh, robust and detailed uh, planning and execution efforts uh, to uh, implement those changes to the tax law and so where th- that's what that's what we're we're doing with this one. There's another piece of this too which is not to get too in the de- in, in the wonky details but that's I guess kind of what, what the podcast yep. yeah, is about. <laughs> this is what it's about. Uh, in addition to the marketplace issue, um, there's the issue of uh, remote sellers who aren't using a marketplace or but are just selling directly. Mm. Into New York State, um, and and for a long time there was a uh, a Supreme Court precedent that held that we couldn't collect sales tax, or no state could collect sales tax, unless those sellers have a physical presence in New York yeah. State. It's a it's what's called the nexus issue. And um, uh, last year, in the uh, a decision called Wayfair, um, uh, the Supreme Court reversed that precedent. Um, so now we can. We can impose uh, sales tax collection responsibility on remote sellers, and so that's a piece of this program as well.
1: And forgive me for not knowing this, but um, the requirement is, you know, they they need to register and start paying, and and if and then you you know your department is in charge of trying to figure out who might be evading those taxes? That's right. Yeah. That's basically it. <laughs> that. That sounds like a big lift. <laughs> yeah, um, that's it. Have you seen anything, whether it's from the smaller ones or from the Amazons, have you seen anything in reaction to the new New York law that is raising any flags? I mean, I assume once something like this is even being talked about, you know, behaviors might change a little yeah. bit. You know, people figure out some workarounds, things like that. Anything,
2: come across yet that looks troublesome? Always on the lookout for workarounds. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the fact that uh, we are now part of a a trend of states that are moving in this direction um, makes that less of an issue. Um, You know, retailers, uh, they have their own systems. And once they invest in complying with one state, uh, uh, the cost for them to invest in compliance of another state is um, is uh, you know it's just it's just uh, marginal on, uh, from from that standpoint. So and, and also you know once once the rules are kind of appropriately in place, um, uh, you know th- they're ultimately collecting that tax from their customer and remitting it to us. So as long as their competitors are also doing that, then really there's there's not a ton of competitive damage to, to, uh, for them. So um, so so you know I think so far we're seeing pretty good trends in terms of compliance, but but we'll see. You have this um,
1: economic development background, tax policy, uh, and now really, you know, really getting into obviously uh, tax policy and implementation um, around the business climate, especially the business climate and the economic development climate, sort of around the state. You know, obviously, New York City's economy is is. Humming along pretty well, though we do see, you know, some of these issues. Obviously, with small businesses trying to survive in today's marketplace and with high rent burdens and such. But you know, the New York City economy very strong, but other parts of the state less so. And obviously, the governor's had a lot of economic development policies. Are there are there tax policies at play that you're thinking about as you sort of bring that prior hat into this new job? Um, you know, around the sort of business climate and even small business climate around the state.
2: Yeah, I, I would say, um, uh, uh, for the most part, to be totally honest, this the, the administrative piece of this new right. job is is so substantial <laughs> and frankly so interesting to me. I mean, so um, uh, uh, you know, so impactful. Like I said at the beginning, when you actually think about the scale of our interactions with people and what what it would mean to improve um, how we do business, that so far, um, you know, my focus really has been more on that side. And and obviously, the kind of broader tax policy issues end up being mediated um, uh, more broadly, you know, th- through the, the, the budget process. I will say, you know, the one uh, uh, kind of big piece of business on the horizon would be cannabis, uh, mm-hmm. adult use cannabis legalization. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we have, a, as a department, are going to have a really big um, uh, role in what that regulated system is going to look like and how we evolve from Uh, what is currently a really large illicit market into what will hopefully be a really large regulated market.
0: Interesting. The thing I'll add, right, is that, um, you know, our top personal income tax rate is on the high side, right? The state sales sales tax rate, very competitive, you know, combined state and local a little high. Um, Business tax rate at the state level is actually very competitive. So it's not, you know, a high tax burden that's, you know, um, really... Part of the problem in upstate New York when it comes to those economies. I think the nature of those problems is very different and really distinct from the tax burden. You know, and then the sort of further evidence of that case is that when you look at the combined, and now i'm I'm sort of previewing some work that CBC is doing here for for the audience, but if you look at the combined business tax rate in the city, it is high because we've got a local local business taxes. But the city continues to thrive and grow right. very quickly. Right. So it's not really a simple question about oh, are taxes suffocating? And I think there's been research done that shows that employers are actually say taxes are not their number one concern anymore when it comes to where to locate and where to grow. Um, so the you know those are important questions, and it's something we always need to be aware of. But it's not like the end all be all about business in New York.
1: Nothing you want to add on that? Okay. Uh, final question, I guess, from me, and maybe Maria, you want to ask something else, but, um, just property taxes, how you're thinking about that. I don't know if, um, I, I suppose at this point, um, you know, they in New York city, they've had a commission. They put together the mayor and the city council speaker. Uh, it hasn't released its, you know, findings, reports, recommendations yet. So I don't imagine that you've been sort of brought in on, on any of that, but, but generally speaking, um, how much, you know, do you sort of are you concerned about property taxes around the state? How much do you, you know, have to have to spend your time and energy on that?
2: Property taxes are a real concern in terms of, you know, my time and energy. We, we as a department, um, property taxes are administered locally. You've got school districts, and you've got counties, and you've got towns and villages and special districts, and 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 they're the ones. Um, uh, setting rates and assessment levels and all of that. We have a, an overall role as a department in the administration of the property tax system and making sure that, to the extent that there are jurisdictions that kind of cross boundaries, that there are equal, you know, equal treatment for similar homes that should have similar value. So that's, that's our, you know, uh, I would say structurally the, the uh, most important um, role that we have as, as a department from a policy standpoint. Property taxes are a very big deal in New York State. Um, uh, you listed all those tax types earlier. It's the property tax levy statewide is over $60 billion. So that's actually, mm-hmm. if you line them all up, that's the highest. Um, uh, and for individual families, I think uh, property taxes are usually more significant than their state income taxes. And, I, and also I think a very salient tax because unlike income tax, we're all used to get, having our income tax withheld from our paycheck – Property tax you get that check and yeah. septem- you get that yeah. bill in September and you say well, I got to come up with that money <laughs> right. you know and so people people really really feel it um, I think uh, the governor and ena- this isn't a new York city thing but but outside of New York City, the governor enacted a two percent cap to um, to increase year to year increase in, in property taxes, which is something that had been part of the discussion for a long time but hadn't happened. Uh, until I think 2011. Um, and that was a consequential reform. Uh, the, the taxes had been going, property taxes had been going up on average, I think five or 6% before then. The, since then, it's been a 1.9% average increase. Um, that that is, uh, translates into $25 billion of savings um, uh, over that period uh, for homeowners. Um, and, uh, and the property tax cap was made permanent in last year's budget. Um, so so I think we'll conti- continue to see savings on, on that front. And I think it's put the state kind of – even though property taxes have been a big issue and are a big issue, I think the tax cap helps to put us on a trajectory where over time uh, hopefully it becomes less so.
0: And I'd say eliminates the need for STAR on you know <laughs> going forward, but I won't ask you to comment on that.
1: <laughs> but speaking of STAR, just quickly – I don't know that much about Star. I mean, I know generally what it is. But I don't know that much about the implementation, and I, I don't. I don't think I have any personal experience with it. But um, it seems to me to be something that pops up in news reports and such um, as something that's had issues. Are you, you know, what's on your agenda in terms of fixing any any issues with yeah. the Star? So program? So there
2: there are two components of the Star program. One is um, uh, people uh, uh, get an exemption. Uh, on their property tax bill. So they just get a bill and the bill is lower. Um, Another piece of it um, for people who are newly coming into the STAR program is um, instead of getting it as an exemption, uh, they get it as a check in the mail, um, uh, which they can then use to apply to their property taxes, um, which gives us as a department, a role in making sure that that check gives, gets in the mail, and and it's it we, you know it's a good thing for us from an administrative standpoint because we can do um, use our data to uh, verify eligibility to make sure that the resources are going uh, in the right direction, but that does mean that it's on us to make sure that that check gets in the mail in time for people to use it to pay their taxes. Um, I think uh, when the this program was first implemented, there was a short window between budget. Uh, passing and implementation, and there were some struggles in getting those checks in the mail. Um, uh, uh, we've been doing uh, uh, much better since then. I think this year we've we've done a pretty good job of making sure those those checks are in the mail in time, and uh, certainly will continue to be a focus.
0: Okay. You know, what's nice oh. about the transition is now since Tax and Finance is verifying the incomes, it p- provides an easy path forward to sort of lower the incomes available for such credit. <laughs>
1: Sneaking that in there. I like <laughs> yeah. it. All right. Mike Schmidt is the commissioner of the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance. Congratulations on really getting going in the new job. Good luck and, and thanks for taking
2: some time with us. Thanks for having me. This was this was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. Go Mets. Go Mets. <laughs> Bye.